Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Phoenix Surveillance Podcast. You're listening to episode 7. This episode is our Phoenix Comic Con Science Report. So, my boss was awesome enough to let me go to Phoenix Comic Con and cover it for the company because there was so much science content and we're a security slash technology company and it was a lot of fun. There was so much science stuff there and it was incredible. I just wish I would have had more time. I realized afterwards there was so much stuff I didn't even get to, but for this episode, I'm just kind of going to give you an overview of some of the science content that they had at Phoenix Comic Con. And then I have some clips from some of the panels I attended, so I'll play that for you too. And just a note, um, you might have heard about the scary incident that happened at Phoenix Comic Con on the Thursday of the event where a man was arrested who was pretty heavily armed and... We're not going to focus on that right now. Uh, We may be talking more about security measures and things like that later on, but for now we're just going to focus on the awesome science content. And over on our website, phoenixsurveillance.com, we did an awesome blog write-up of what we're going to be talking about. So if you want to have links and see some of the pictures, you can head over there. So first up, there was some amazing science panels. And so it was really fun because they would take, you know, pop culture things and incorporate real life science into them. And the people who put on these panels were just awesome. They just, you could tell they were so enthusiastic and passionate about it. It made it super interesting. And I think that's really great, especially like for little kids and things like that. So, for example, there was panels about the science behind things like Justice League, Halo, Mr. Robot, The Twilight Zone, Futurama, Star Trek, and a lot more. So it's just like there was something for everybody and it was very entertaining but educational. And I think that's exactly what they were going for and they totally succeeded. So great job everybody with that. And then in addition to all those types of panels, there was a lot of real world science too, which was really cool and interesting. So there were panels on things like cybersecurity, STEM, microbes, domestication, bird watching, pharmaceuticals, and the list goes on and on. And uh, I mentioned in the article that curiosity is really a trait that I think a lot of Comic-Con goers have in common. So it's great to have all these panels like that where you can actually learn something. And I think my highlight was the AZ Stars of Science. And so that was just such a great panel. It had the science powerhouses, Dante Loretta, Sharon O'Neill, and Burt Jacobs. And I actually have some clips from that. So I'm gonna play that for you right now. So. For each of you, and I think we're going to go the other direction this time, do you have a science hero? Who is, is there somebody who you're like that, like similar to, to Batman for normal people? <laughs> so I kind of, I've got two that I've been thinking about. Um, one is a guy named Alex Rich. So Alex um, was the second person to solve the structure of DNA. You all know the first people. Rosalind Franklin? Watson and Crick using Rosalind Franklin's data. There we go. <laughs> um, and um, they, of course, solved the structure we all know. It's called BDNA. Uh, when Alex solved 
the structure of DNA, he got a completely different structure, called it Z DNA, and um, spent pretty much 30 years of his life trying to figure out what that alternative structure of DNA might do. And so we started collaborating about 15 years ago and started to get some hints of what it might do. And unfortunately, Alex passed away about two years ago. And I think right now in the lab, we're really on the verge of figuring out what this crazy alternative structure of DNA might do. And, you know, I just, Alex's tenacity of just knowing it had to be important and trying to figure out how it was important is really inspiring. So I have to, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of my story of how I started the Fun Fest through my hero. And my hero was Sally Ride. You guys know who Sally Ride is? She bought me a cookie once. Yeah. <laughs> so Raytheon, I've worked at Raytheon now for 32 years. I'm getting ready to retire in two more weeks, but who's counting? <laughs> Congratulations. But um, Sally Ride was brought in as the, um, the keynote speaker at a women's leadership conference about uh, probably 18 years ago now. And um, I was included in, in the conference. I was able to go and attend. And I heard her speak. And, you know, at first it was really cool, you know, female astronaut, first female astronaut. Wow, look at that, she's achieved. But then she started talking about what she was doing to encourage um, young girls to get into math and science fields. And she started something called the Sally Ride Science Festival. And she took it from, from city to city all over the country. And at the time, I had my twins. My twins were in fourth grade. Um, they're girls. And I'm like, wow, I've got to bring my girls. I can't wait till she comes to, oh, wait a minute. Does she really come to Tucson? Oh, man, what am I going to do? So by the end of the night, after hearing her talk, I went up to my hotel room. And I wrote the president of Raytheon Missile Systems an email. And I said, um, I have an idea. You know, Sally Ride has inspired me to create a festival here in Tucson. Um, I don't know how I'm gonna do it yet, so I also wrote to my girls' principal, and they had a very large elementary school, over 600 students went there, and I asked her, I said, let me use your school for one day and turn every single classroom into a laboratory with all different kinds of math and sciences and engineering and different types of technology. And lo and behold, did I know that that event was gonna later end up becoming a annual event that we would fill registration in less than 12 hours. And over the course of 13 years now, we've had more than 75,000 students and teachers and parents go through the halls of the Tucson Convention Center, being inspired by many, many different types of, of, of scientists and mathematicians, engineers, and professionals in the Tucson community. And I'm like, you know what? If I hadn't sat in that audience, listening to Sally Ride and what she was doing across the country. Now, she was um, specifically targeting girls. And I'm like, in the state of Arizona, it's not just girls that need inspiring. It, it is girls, it is boys, it is teachers that need inspiring on how we can bring up the next generation of math and scientists. Um, so we, we still do it. It's much smaller scale now these days um, since I took on a larger responsibility within Raytheon. Um, but I'm now on the board of directors for SARSEF, uh, Southern Arizona Research and, and Engineering Foundation. And um, they have converted it into a one-day event. So the legacy lives on. Um, and now that I'm getting ready to retire, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. 
I, I did start working at U of A, so now I'm kind of focused on bringing up the next generation engineer. Um, but I still have this passion for math and science outreach. So Sally Wright, thank you for giving me that inspiration and the courage to, to, to take on the, the Southern Arizona students. Well, for me, uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission is dedicated to uh, Professor Michael Drake. Uh, Mike was my mentor. He, um, first of all, gave me the job at U of A, so he hired me as a young assistant professor back in 2001. And then about two and a half years into my uh, professorship, I got a phone call. He was the director of the lab. And he said, Dante, I've got uh, Lockheed Martin in my office, and they want to partner with the University of Arizona on an asteroid sample return mission. And I want you to be my deputy uh, for this activity. And I thought, wow, that's a tough decision when you don't have tenure, right? Because winning a spacecraft mission proposal is not an easy thing, and it takes years to do. Um, but absolutely, how can I say no to joining an asteroid mission? And so uh, Mike and I worked together uh, for seven years of writing proposals and rewriting and getting rejected. The first proposal we wrote uh, was very naive, <laughs> and it's fun to go back and look at it in 2004 uh, and what we bid to NASA. And, and NASA ranks your proposals by category. Uh, category one means we love this mission and we want to fly it if it's at all possible. And category two means it's, it's interesting, but it's not our top priority. Category three means you've got some technology development to do. Category four means we're not going to tell you why, but we're not selecting you. And that's what we got on the first proposal, it's category four. Uh, but we believed in the concept and the team, and we had this chemistry that just seemed really positive and that we needed to try again. We wrote a second proposal to NASA in 2005. Fortunately, the opportunity came around that quickly. Uh, and that time, it was in a, a program called Discovery, and we made what's called Phase A at that point. Phase A, you get about a million dollars from NASA to go forward with a concept study, and there's two or three other teams that you're competing against, so it's kind of like getting to the championship game in the NCAA basketball tournament. And we thought we had it, you know, it was going to be a great proposal. We fixed all the problems from the first one, we worked through our partners, we brought on the Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, and we lost that one because of uh, Cost. It was really not a portable mission in the discovery program. And we didn't believe it, but not now I believe it. <laughs> when I look back at what, everything we need to do to get around that asteroid. So we went in a third time, this now is 2008, four years later, in the New Frontiers program, which is a bigger program, $800 million budget against a $400 million budget. And uh, we got phase A again, we got down to the championship game, we were the veteran team. The 2011, uh, we won the mission, May 2011, and so we were selected to go forward and develop this amazing spacecraft. And unfortunately, in September of 2011, Mike passed away. So um, it was a real hard time for me and for the team. Uh, but you know, I visited him right at the end, and uh, he said that, that I could do it. I wasn't sure. I was like, what are we going to do without you, Mike? And you're the leader. I'm the deputy. And my job was supposed to just worry about the science. I wasn't going to have to worry about all the politics and budgets and management. And, crap that the principal investigator deals with, no offense, but uh, he told me that, you know, he picked me for a reason and uh, that, that he was counting on me to, to take the team forward to lead the mission, so uh, when he passed away, I stepped up into the principal investigator's job and kind of had that for the past six years or so. So, similar to, like, a, a science hero, um, there's always that sort of, I call it the white whale of science, it's that thing that's 
what you would achieve if you could, if you had like infinite funding and time, and you were just told like go do something awesome. Do any of you have that like white whale project, and how close is that to what you're actually doing? And if it's the same thing, how did you get that funding? <laughs> I don't know about the funding. <laughs> to me, my white whale is cybersecurity. Like here I am getting ready to retire, and all of a sudden there's this brand new field threatening all of our lives significantly. Um, I, you know, the more I learn, the more I get scared. Um, but the, the less I do social networking just because of, of my fear with cybersecurity issues. Um, so here I am getting ready to retire, and I'm like one after another master's degree. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I don't want to start a new career. I have no idea of, of what I'm going to end up doing with it other than helping to inspire these engineers that I'm going to be teaching. Because now I've started a cyber class at the U of A and helping them to grow their cyber program and not just make it part of the IT infrastructure because I am a you know, embedded real-time systems kind of guy. You know, developing the spaceships, developing the missiles, developing the hard stuff and really extremely challenging. The things that can really be seriously threatening to our society. And when I think about cyber warfare, it's like, wow, this could be very, very intimidating and, and detrimental to our society as it goes forward. So I don't know yet what I'm gonna end up doing with it. Um, but I'd have to say it's it's my white whale. It's like I'm not done yet, right? I, I want to continue learning. I want to continue growing and take everything that I've learned over the course of my career and my networks that I have built and say how can I further apply that? So um, we'll see where that ends up taking me. Well, for me, uh, the, the next uh, big thing that. If anything could come out of the Osiris transmission, we're going to do amazing science and I'm positive of that with return samples. But I've been involved now uh, with an asteroid mining company called Planetary Resources on their advisory board. And uh, for me, that's the white whale because that, that kind of changes everything. I mean, if we actually figure out how to get into space, process carbon rich asteroids or carbonaceous asteroids, which also have a lot of water locked in their uh, mineral structures. Uh, and create rocket fuel, which is the primary business model that planetary resources is, is working on, then the sky's not the limit anymore. I mean, we can go anywhere and we want in the solar system, and uh, it would be a game changer for the human species, for the future of everything that we put together here on this planet. So, uh, when I, you, you know, you make fun of my mission acronym, but uh, when I came up with it, I put resource identification, that was back in 2004, I came up with that term, and I wanted that in the name, and I thought back then, man, this is just sci-fi, but I'm gonna put it in here anyways because you know we all think asteroid mining is kind of a joke. And sure enough, in 2017, I'm on the board of advisors of a company that has 70 people who go to work every day and they think about how we're gonna get a spacecraft out to asteroids and mine it for rocket fuel. And they have customers that said, we'll pay you. If you get that to back to Earth orbit, we will pay you a million dollars a kilogram for water. Dollars a kilogram for water, that sounds like a pretty good deal, but it's not that easy of a thing to do. So, uh, you know, Luxembourg has announced they're going to be the world center of space resource utilization and they're putting hundreds of millions of euros into the prospect. And, they, and Planetary Resources has a big pro, uh, contract with them now to continue developing that technology. So, yeah, before I die, I'd love to see us actually develop an economic model for space exploration that works. 
And you know, when I was when I was up there visiting them, they said, "Well, you got to remember, Dante, this isn't a science mission. This isn't a science project." And I said, "Oh, I know." I said, "But if you start bringing back asteroid water, then science is going to go along for the ride, and we're going to learn so much about asteroids and the formation of the solar system. We only need, you know, milligrams of material to do our science these days with all of our electron microscopes and, and awesome analytical equipment. So, you just bring me back some dust particles." For me, it's probably the other scale. For me, it's nanomachines. You know, for, for those of us who remember the fantastic voyage, shrinking, sinking, uh, uh, shrinking down a, a submarine that can then go into the body and repair it. Um, I think we can do that. Uh, and in fact, we have nanomachines already. They're called viruses. And they go into our body and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time they do harm. And so I think the quest of the, that, that some of us are starting to think about is, can we engineer viruses so that we can get them to go into the body and do good rather than doing harm? And I think the first place you'll start seeing this are with viruses that can preferentially destroy cancer cells. They're actually, you know, there are clinical trials with viruses that can do that. The clinical trials look promising, but these are the first models. And, you know, we think we can go ahead and engineer new viruses to do really amazing things um, in the future. For me, that, that, that's the way. All right, so that's just a taste of how awesome that panel was. I seriously could have just listened to them talk for just hours and hours and hours. So that was really, really cool, and I enjoyed that so much. And I actually ended up playing more clips than I thought I would, so I'm going to stop it here for now. I do have some more that we'll incorporate into future episodes, so stay tuned for that. And yeah, so back at Phoenix Comic Con, there was all the awesome panels. But in addition to all that, when you headed over to the Hall of Heroes, there was a ton of more science displays. There was a giant inflatable solar system, a planetarium, the Arizona Cyber Warfare Range. And so you can see a full list of all the exhibitors that were there over on our website, phoenixsurveillance.com. So it just was so cool and so educational. Very, very awesome. So we're going to wrap it up this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can find out more about us at our website, phoenixsurveillance.com. And from there, you'll find a portal to all of our social media if you'd like to join us on there. And if you have a question or comment or just want to say hi, you can always just send an email to phxsurveillance at gmail.com. Alright, that's going to do it for this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode. And until then, be sure to stay safe out there, everyone.